morning, church. If you have your Bibles, we are going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Second Peter. We're in Second Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. God bless you. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 this morning. All right, starting in verse 10 we read, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The title of my message this morning is, What Do You Hear? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word and to know that your presence is here, Lord. Your Holy Spirit is here to teach us, instruct us, and guide us in your truth, Lord, as we look to your word. We pray, Father, that we would have open ears to hear all that you have to say to us this morning. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, that they would do so today, Lord. They would see their need for their Savior, Lord. We pray that you would draw us closer into our relationship with you, Lord. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together for the sweet time of worship we've had. And now we just continue to worship you through the study of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's an internet craze going on. I don't know if you know this or not. Uh, it's a computer-generated word that people hear differently. Now, don't say anything. Let me play the clip. Don't shout out what you hear yet. Let anyone hear it first. Go ahead, Jacob. Okay. How many people hear the word yanny? Okay. How many people hear the word laurel? I think the yannies have it. Say, do, do yannies again. Okay, now Laurel. Okay. Now here's, here's what I'm gonna say. They say that younger ears, better ears, hear the words Laurel. Older ears hear the words Yanny. I, 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 I don't know. There is a little gauge on this thing that you can move it to make it go slower and, 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 and faster. Move it towards the, the Yanny side, which is to the right. Yes. 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 Do you hear Yanny? Yes. Now, those of you that, that hear laurels, do you hear Yanny? Yes. Yes. You can hear a little bit of Yanny? Yes. I'm going to go the other way. Okay. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> the actual word is laurel. So for all of you that the, the actual word is laurel. But it just, you know, it, it, it goes to show you, we hear things differently. We do. And as a church, 
we should hear things differently. Jesus said this in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Seven times he said this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The readers of Revelation are called upon to pay close attention and seek God's wisdom concerning what is written. Jesus' simple request is that we use our God-given faculties, our eyes to see, our ears to hear, to tune into His words, to know what's going on in our world around us through the lens of Scripture. You know, we hear the terrible tragedies of the shootings in our high schools, and we see these things happening in our world around us. And we know as believers we're living in end times. But those who don't know Christ, they're confused. They, they don't know what's going on. You know, it's like those mirrors you have on, on your car. Maybe you have it on your car, the passenger side mirror. It says the little words, as objects are closer than they appear. And, and, and that's because they, they built those mirrors so to be convex that they allow for a much wider view or angle of vision. In the same way, we as believers, we're called to live with this much wider angle of vision, we are to see events around us in light of Scripture, especially in light of what the Bible says about living in the last days. You see, the theme of Second Peter chapter 3 is to remind us of that wider angle of vision that we need to have to see the big picture. It's to let us hear that God has a plan for this earth. And as believers, we should know what that plan is. So that as we look around the world today, I would have to say that the Lord's return is closer than it appears. It's closer. Now, to those that are excited about the Lord's return and can't wait, they say, I hear, you know, I hear the Lord's returning soon. Even so, come quickly, Lord. But those not so excited, they hear, yanny, 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 yanny. <laughs> Listen, when we talk about the Lord's return, we do so because Jesus did. When we talk about end times, we do so because the God, because God's Word does. Peter does specifically here in chapter 3. In fact, if you recall from last time together, a couple weeks back, we saw how there, was, there would be mockers in the last days. Those that would scoff at the thought of Jesus' return. And we certainly see that happening today. We saw how last, last time that how they would deny the Lord's return. They would deny the history of the world. Even deny that judgment is coming. But we know, according to God's Word and what we've already read so far, that judgment is coming. Why hasn't it happened yet? Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, right now, God is patiently holding back judgment so that many would be melted by His love and grace and get saved. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Right now, we're living during the time of grace and God's goodness that hopefully will bring people to repentance. But that will soon be over. And it's for that reason Peter describes for us the big picture. He lets us know that the time of our departure is closer than it appears. Now, I mentioned last week that I would talk about the nation of Israel briefly and how they just celebrated on May 14th, this last Monday, the 70th year of being a nation, declared a nation. The fact of the matter is, one of the biggest signs that we have to prove to us that we are living in the last days is the regathering of the nation of Israel. 
Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7 and 8. Isaiah spoke of the rebirth of, of Israel as being born in one day. Listen to this in the New Living Translation. Before the birth pains even begin, Jerusalem gives birth to a son. Who has ever seen anything as strange as this? Who ever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? But by the time Jerusalem's birth pain begins, her children will be born. And that really does accurately describe what happened on May 14, 1948, when the Jews declared independence for Israel as a united and sovereign nation for the first time in 2,900 years. Now, along with that, with President Trump officially moving our embassy to Jerusalem and recognizing Jerusalem as its capital, uh, it's what we've heard. We've heard this all in the news during this week. We've also seen uh, and heard all those that are against the nation of Israel and how they're against the United States for doing this. We've seen the heartbreaking pictures of the Hamas using children as cover to attack Israel. But you see, God has his hand on the nation of Israel. And according to God's word, Israel is really the timepiece for the last days. See, the Bible tells us in the last days that all nations will be gathered against her. Listen to Psalm 83, verse 3 and 4. They've taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They've said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Don't we hear that today? People say the same thing. Zechariah 12.3 tells us this, And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. We're seeing the same thing. Ever since Israel became a nation, there have been those countries that want to see her destroyed, that want to see her cease as a nation. But God's hand is on the nation of Israel. I mean, think of the Six-Day War fought in 1967. An amazing victory. Let me give you some insights into this. It was fought between Israel and, and Arabs' neighbors, Egypt, Jordan, Syria. The nations of Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Algeria, and others also contributed troops uh, to arm the Arab forces. The Israeli military was outnumbered on all fronts and all services. Israel could, could feel the total strength of 264,000 soldiers, Facing them were 525,000 Arab soldiers. Israeli tanks were outnumbered by more than 3 to 1. 800 Israeli tanks faced 2,424 Arab tanks. The Israeli Air Force could field 350 aircraft, outnumbered almost 3 to 1 by 939 Arab aircraft. And yet in six days, as a result of this attack, Israel captured the entire Sinai Desert, including the Gaza Strip from Egypt, Judea, Samaria, and half of Jerusalem from Jordan and the Golan Heights from Syria. Instead of being annihilated, wiped off the map, she had more than tripled her territory. I mean, the fact that Israel survived is a miracle in and of itself, but not just survived, won a decisive victory with all those odds stacked against her. A West Point general once remarked that though the U.S. Military Academy studies wars fought throughout the world, they do not study the Six-Day War because what concerns West Point is strategy and tactics, not miracles. <laughs> Yet, then there was the Yom Kippur War, fought from October 6th to October 26th, 1973. Coalition of Arab states led by Egypt and Syria against Israel, wanting to recapture what they lost back in 1967. 
eventually Arab forces were defeated by Israel and there was no significant territorial changes that they lost. Why? Because God's word says in Amos 9.15, I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now this we know. The enemies aren't going to quit. They're still going to come after Israel. We know that because the Bible tells us so. Ezekiel chapters 36 on up to 39 really have to do with the nation of Israel, specifically chapter 38, verses 5 and 6. We're told there of this, this huge Russian-led army will decide uh, to, to come and attack Israel. And there it lists the names of these uh, nations that at the time of Ezekiel that will come there along with them. There's six of them translated into the, today's time. It would be Iran, Sudan, Libya, Central Turkey, Eastern Turkey, and Russia. And here's something interesting. Maybe you saw this. About a month ago, there was an article in a Turkish paper with close ties to Turkey's President Erdogan, exposing the regime's desire to form an army of Islam to attack and destroy the state of Israel. This Turkish article called on the 57 member nations of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC, throughout the Muslim world to join forces together against Israel. And here's what the article said. They said, if the member states of the OIC unite militarily, they will form the world's largest and most comprehensive, comprehensive army. The number of active soldiers would be at least 5,206,100, while the defense budget would reach approximately $175 billion. The article goes on with additional detail of the plan, saying, it is expected that 250,000 soldiers would participate in the first of a possible operation, Land, air, and naval bases of member states located in the most critical regions would be used. Joint bases would be constructed in a short period of time. It is possible for 500 tanks and armored vehicles, 100 planes and 500 attack helicopters, and 50 ships to mobilize quickly. Now, the president there, Erdogan, did not deny support for the report and has on several occasions said that he wishes he could resurrect the Ottoman Empire. So we see these things setting up, these things these coming into place. We know that there's been a recent Russia, Turkey, and Iran alliance formed together. We know Iran wants to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that this is fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 38 and it's happening right now. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just pointing out what we're hearing going on. And here's, as, as believers, what we hear, what we see, we see there's some comparison to God's Word. We can look at the daily newspaper. We can look at the news on the internet. We can open up God's Word and go, man, that, man, that, that seems to fit right in together with what's going on over here. And again, those that are looking for the Lord's return, I, I think we, we hear things differently. We see things in light of the Lord's return. Now, let me say this. Whenever this army does choose to strike against Israel, because it will happen if it's right now or, or 10, 20, 30 years from now, they're in for it because God's going to supernaturally intervene. He says in, in Ezekiel 38, 21 and 22, he says, I will call for a sword against God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I'll bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstorms, fire, and brimstone. So God will step in and say, that's it. You think you're going to attack Israel? You're done. 
We're told that five-sixths of this Russian-led army will be destroyed. All that to say, again, when it comes to the prophecies of Ezekiel 38, it certainly seems that the nations are in place right now for this to happen. One more news item, something in the headlines that kind of puts us in that same mode that, that the Lord is returning is, is the city of Damascus. It's been in the news a lot lately. Syria, the, the chemical weapons that, you know, that were set off there outside of Damascus. Isaiah chapter 17 verse 1 tells us, the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. In other words, there's going to come a time where no one can even enter the city any longer. It'll cease from being a city. It, it would be too dangerous to even go into that. And you think about all the chemical weapons stored around Damascus, in Damascus. It would not take much to completely destroy the city of Damascus. So I look around and I see what's going on in the world and I say, man, we are close, folks. Objects are closer than they appear. Now, with that said, I'm thankful to be in this section of Second Peter because we have the opportunity to see the order of events that God has for us in these last days. And this brings us to the, these, these four verses, verses 10 through 13 of Second Peter. And if you're taking notes, I want to point out three things in these four verses. Number one, the day of the Lord, what that means. Number two, the day in which we live. And number three, the day in our future. Number one is the day of the Lord. Peter starts off in verse 10 with the phrase, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, what does Peter mean when he says the day of the Lord? Well, according to Scripture, there are four different days, not 24-hour days, but time periods referred to as days that certain things will be accomplished. There is the day of man. There is the day of Christ. There is the day of the Lord, and there is the day of God. We are currently living in the day of man. Now, the day of man began at the time of Genesis chapter 9, verse 2, when the Lord told Noah, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on, the, on all that move on the earth, and on all the flesh of the sea, they are given into your hand. A time where basically man is in control of this earth. Now, God ultimately is in control, but he has sovereignly given man the freedom to make decisions. And boy, we made some really bad decisions. You know, we, we made this whole world a mess. So that the result of the day of man is really a day of one big mess. It's a time characterized in the book of Judges, chapter 17, verse 6, where there's, it says there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we're certainly seeing that today. That's been the problem with man throughout all the ages. Instead of seeking the Lord, seeking what the Lord would have for us, we do what is right in our own eyes. And this mess is the result. So then you have, so you have the day of man. Then you have the day of Christ. Let me give you a couple of verses about the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6 tells us, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.8 who will also confirm to you the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the day of Christ speaks of the time when Jesus is going to come back in the clouds, the trumpet will sound, will blow, and we as Christians will be caught up, raptured to ever be with the Lord. We know 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 spells it out pretty clearly for us. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, 
Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we, shall we always be with the Lord. See, we as a church, we're listening for that trumpet sound, for the Lord to say, come on up, I'm ready for you. Now we know the church is known as the bride of Christ, so that when the church is taken home to be with the Lord, there's going to be a great reception in heaven. A huge wedding feast that the Bible talks about that will last for seven years. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, found in Revelation chapter 19. Now I'm sure none of us were invited to the royal wedding yesterday. I didn't get my invitation in the mail. I didn't come. I was looking for it. But, uh, but all that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are invited to the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. I look forward to that. But as that takes place in heaven... Meanwhile, down on earth, right after the rapture, will mark the beginning of the day of the Lord. And that's our first point, but it's it's our third uh, day that we're looking at right now, the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? Well, of all the prophecies in the Bible, there is none so detailed as this thing known as the day of the Lord. It's used over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It's it's not a term filled with a whole lot of joy, a whole lot of, of hope. At the time when God will judge the world and punish the nations. Listen to Isaiah 13, verse 6. Well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 2:12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Joel 2:1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand. doesn't sound like it's exciting. I mean, it doesn't sound like, oh, great, I'm glad it's going to start. See, the day of the Lord begins with the seven-year great tribulation. Apostle John describes it for us in detail in the book of Revelations from chapter, Revelation from chapter 6 to 19. It's a wrath of God being poured out again on a Christ-rejecting world. Seven-year time period worth of intense, cataclysmic events taking place on the earth where the Bible says if it are not for the very elect, the, 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 the days would be short. And no, no, it says, the Bible says unless those days were short and no flesh would survive, is what it says. But let me say this, that a Jewish day begins at six in the evening. So that their day actually gets darker before it gets brighter. Well, the day of the Lord is going to start pretty dark. I mean, a dark time in the face of the earth, and it will get darker before it gets brighter. But at the end of those seven years, Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth with this church, with us, his bride, and set his feet down there in Jerusalem, there on the Mount of Olives. That's what's called the, the, the second coming of Jesus Christ. First, he comes in the air to take his church home to be with him. Secondly, he comes back to the ground to put an end to the Great Tribulation period, to put an end to this battle of Armageddon that's taking place, a war to end all wars taking place in the Valley of Megiddo. When Jesus returns, he will not stop in the clouds, but will set up his kingdom upon the earth where righteousness will rule for 1,000 years, also known as the millennium. Instead of man running things, Jesus is in charge and he does things right. So for a thousand years, Christ will reign in which the Bible says the wolf will lie down with the lamb. A child can play with, 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 with serpents where there'll be no more war, just peace. That, too, is a part of the day of the Lord. Starting with the tribulation all the way through this. Then we come to verse 10. After the thousand years, 
Look at verse 10. You've heard of global warming. You haven't seen anything yet. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So as soon as this event is through, it will mark the final day of the Lord, and then start the next new day, uh, the beginning of eternity, what is known as the day of of God. So let's look at the four different days. Number one, or A, the day of man before the rapture of the church. B, the day of Christ, the rapture of the church in the heaven. C, the day of the Lord from the great tribulation on to the complete destruction of the planet. And then D, the day of God, which is eternity with our God, where Peter describes it in verse 13, as new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, let's go back now to the beginning of the day of the Lord. Again, our first point, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So we get described a little bit how that day will come. He describes it as a thief in the night. So remember, the day of the Lord starts from the rapture of the church all the way to the destruction of the planet. So it comes as a thief in the night. And there was an old movie produced in the 70s called A Thief in the Night. And if you've seen it, it was before the Left Behind series and all the books came out and, and uh, it was about the rapture of the church and, and uh, I actually found the trailer for it. And I thought, you guys have got to see this, okay? So, so I'm going to play it for you. Look at this trailer. Pretty scary, huh? <laughs> you know, when I was young and I watched it, it did freak the daylights out of me. Not because of the, the way that they did that, but, you know. But but I don't know what the snake and the guy screaming has anything to do with that whatsoever. But, uh, but uh, you know, it, it really did keep a lot of teenagers up at night. I mean, you know, back during the Jesus movement and all that, it was like, you know, the Lord could come back at any moment. But it's something we need to know about a thief in the night and that whole phrase. Jesus will come back as a thief in the night to those that are living in darkness, 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us. To those living in darkness, those non-believers, they're going to be caught unaware. See, what Peter is doing here, if you remember, is he's expanding on what he already said as we looked at last time together. Look back at verse 5. He says, for this day, and he's talking about the false teachers at the time who denied the coming of the Lord, denied really his return. He said, For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. 
But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So putting all this together, here's what Peter's saying. He's saying just as the materials that were used in creation became the instrument of destruction in the past, the flood, in like manner, the materials that are currently used in the earth today will become the recipe of its future destruction. In the past, it was water. In the future, it will be fire. But notice also what else it says in verse 10. Peter doesn't say that there's a strong possibility or a good chance that everything on the earth is going to be burned up. No. God's word says that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Period. It's going to happen. In other words, God says that I'm going to rip away the heavens, I'm going to destroy the whole earth. We're going to start all over again. Now listen, he's God. He can do that. And since Scripture clearly states he will do that, then why would we think that he wouldn't do that? If over one-fourth of our Bible is prophecy, and everything that God has said would come to pass to this point has come to pass, then we have no reason to think that the remainder of the prophecies will not come to pass. And that's the point Peter's making. God's word is God's word. And if God says it's going to happen, then it's going to happen. And it will happen, he says, with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. The words great noise there is a Greek word, rosadon, defined by weast and vines to translate as the great winds of fire. Here, Jerry Lee Lewis seeing great balls of fire. These are going to be great winds of fire. And the word elements in the Greek is the word stoikion, and according to Strong's Concordance, it is defined as the elements from which all things have come, the material causes of the universe. So, these two words, great noise and elements burning, have led many modern-day scholars to suggest that this is some sort of nuclear blast. Fire in the heavens, the sky that causes the earth to melt and to be burned up. That really does describe a nuclear explosion. Now, we do know this. Hebrews 11, verse 3 tells us, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. So you have protons and you have neutrons and an atom. We can't see them, but we know that our world is made up of them. We also know that because of Colum's law of electricity, it says that like charges repel. That means that the protons and the atoms should repel against each other like a magnet, two magnets when you put them together. However, something keeps these elements from repelling from each other. Scientists can't figure that out. They can't understand what holds an atom together, so they made up a name for it. It's called atomic glue. That, that's, it, it, it holds everything together. It's atomic glue. They actually gave it a scientific name, gluons. I mean, we know it's Jesus. Hebrews 1, 3 tells us, He upholds all things by the word of His power. He holds everything together. That's what the word is telling us here. But there's going to come a day when Jesus lets things go. One gigantic boom and everything will be wiped out, obliterated, done away with the day of the Lord. See, God is saying, I'm going to bring the world to an end of its age. And when I decide it's time, I'm going to pack up the earth, I'm going to roll back the heavens, and I will torch the earth, and everything that's on the earth will be gone, and that's what I am going to do. And he's telling us this ahead of time. Why? So we could be prepared. That brings us to point number two, the days in which we live. Look at verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct 
and godliness. Now, Peter, he's not asking a question, really, as much as he's making a statement. He's not saying, well, since everything is going to burn, how should we live? I don't know. No, what he's saying is that with absolute certainty, these things will be dissolved. And so we need to conduct our lives in holiness and godliness. Why? Because it's all going to burn. Let me ask you this. Knowing that all these things will be dissolved, is there something here on this earth that when it begins to burn, you're going to cry, Oh no, not my iPad. Oh no, not my, my phone. Oh no, not my car. Oh no, let the car burn. I still owe money on that. Let it burn. You see, Peter wants us to examine our lives to see if perhaps we're too attached to some of our possessions. I've said this many times, possessions are okay as long as possessions don't possess us. As long as it's not something, I just can't live without, you fill in the blank. Listen, whenever you find yourself too attached to your possessions, all you need to do is take a drive out to the dump, it's a little ways out there towards Bolivar, get out of your car, take a really big whiff, just breathe in. Why? Because that's all your old stuff you're smelling. Okay, all the clothes that you've spent too much money on, that jacket, those cool new tennis shoes, that, that new sofa, all your stuff, it's out there. Then when you leave the dump, take a trip out to the auto salvage yard. Then take a look at that Chevy Malibu that you thought was so cool. Have you ever seen those trucks when they're, you know they're going to the, to the, to the scrapyard and, and they're hauling junk cars and they've smashed them down to about this size and they're stacked on top of each other, you know, and, and, and they look like pancakes? Listen, at, at one point in that car's life, someone took a look at that car, opened the door and went, oh, this is nice. They smelt the new car smell. Oh, this is, this is great. I can't believe this is mine. And now it's on the back of that truck smashed about this high. You know, I can't believe that was mine. It's going to be melted down for scrap metal. But man, when we had it, oh, okay, no eating in this car, no food in this car, you know, keep your feet off the upholstery, kids. Now the kids are gone and the car's a pancake. See, God says, think about this. That, that thing that you really, really prized, someday it's all going to be gone. It's all going to be torched. Why? Because it doesn't matter in the kingdom. We're not going to have cars in the kingdom. We're not going to, to need new tennis shoes in the kingdom. But there are, are those that go completely overboard and it's their life and their life is consumed by possessions. But God is saying, ease up. It's all going to burn. It's not that important when you look at it from the eternal perspective. See, Peter is saying in verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? It's not a question, it's an exhortation. Knowing that we're living in the last days of human history, that men are going to perish for all eternity, our lives need to be marked by holiness, holy conduct and godliness. Holy conduct and godliness. It describes our daily activities. Holy means set apart, keeping yourself away from sin. And godliness is the more positive way of looking at it. It's deliberately living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. I think that's one of the reasons why the church is so weak today is because we're not living holy and, and, and godly lives. And we're, we're playing with sin rather than abhorring it and resisting it. We're, they're, they're clinging to it, and, and even though they profess to be followers of Christ, and the real tragedy is seen in their lives because they have no joy, no peace. And worst of all, there's no fruit in their life because they're holding on to that sin. 
I'm told that there's a, in some parts of the world there's a tree which has been nicknamed a Judas tree because of its deceitfulness. It has this beautiful red flower that attracts bees by the millions, but the nectar inside contains an opiate that is deadly to them, as evidenced by the piles of dead bees at the base of every Judas tree. Now what a, a, a perfect description of the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, it looks good to the eye, but it's deadly to the soul. For that reason, we need to rely on the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit to discern good from evil, to surrender ourselves completely to Christ's living life of holiness. God calls us to. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, For I am the Lord your God, He says, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The Lord is saying to us in these days in which we live that our lives need to be marked by holiness. We need to be separate from the world. Like night and day difference between us and those that don't know the Lord. A big difference. And then he says this in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And that brings us to our final point, number three, the day in our future. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. It says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness wealth. Oh, I love that. It's all going to burn. It's all going to go away. But we, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, verse 12 is an incredible verse because it has everything to do with our attitudes and our activities now as we look to the future. We're to look for and expect that this could be our last day here on this earth. And we should live that way. Whether the Lord takes us home via rapture right now or takes us home via death. And, and, and then Peter says, not only should we expect the Lord to return, we, should, we can actually hasten His coming, verse 12 says. The meaning of that word hasten, one of the meanings is to accelerate. So, you should think you can accelerate the coming of the Lord. Now, how would we do that? I mean, didn't the Lord say He's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? Exactly. That's how we can accelerate His coming, by telling more people about Him. Listen to this verse in Acts chapter 3, verse 19 through 21. It's Peter speaking, and he said this to the people. He said, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. See, Peter seemed to understand that Jesus wouldn't come back until they were saved. And so he's telling them, you know, the, the, he felt that he was sent to preach and he's telling them, listen, you get saved, Jesus can come back. There would be times of refreshing that would come. In essence, he's saying, hurry up and repent so that Jesus could come back. And I would say the same thing. If you haven't repented of your sins, hurry up and repent so Jesus can come back. We're waiting on you. We also know, it says in Acts chapter 2, that the Lord added to the church Daily is those that should be saved. And that's what we're looking for. You know, there's a book in heaven. It's called the Book of Life. And there are names written in it. And those that have come to repentance and have given their life to Jesus Christ, their, their names are found written in this Book of Life. And so we are right now in this waiting period for that last person who's not saved to get saved, to get their name written in that book. And maybe this morning we're waiting for you. Maybe we're waiting on your next door neighbor. 
Maybe we're waiting on you, on your coworker. Someone needs to go and talk to them so we can get out of here. That's the way we can hasten the coming day of God. It's an attitude that Peter wants us to adopt towards the unsaved. Encouraging people to make a decision for Christ. Encouraging us to fulfill the purpose of why we are still here on this planet. To make disciples, to reach the lost. Yet there is a day in the future that's going to be horrific, catastrophic. We're not looking for that day. We look forward, according to his promises, Peter says here, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God said the same thing in Isaiah 65, 17. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. The day of man, the horrible times of the tribulation, all of those things that happen on this earth will be forgotten. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth will be born. Listen, God did such an amazing job the first time around. Could you imagine how great the next one will be? How different it'll be? I want to close with this. It's John's description of the new earth and the new heaven. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 4 says this. John writes, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there is no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. He'll wipe away every tear, every sorrow. There'll be no longer any death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. All passed away. God will live with us. I mean, that to me is is great. We know the end of the movie. We know how it's going to turn out. And we can be excited about that. But we need to be excited about reaching the lost as well. So my question this morning is, are you ready? We are close. Are you listening for that trumpet? Is God speaking to your heart this morning? Do you hear what he's saying? We're told in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. If you're not saved here this morning, I encourage you, Listen to the Lord. He's knocking on your heart. He wants you to open up and let Him in. He'll forgive you of your sin, cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. He'll write your name in the book of life. He'll give you His Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you. And He promises you heaven with Him for all eternity. Out of this world, out of the tribulation. So if you don't know Christ, I encourage you to give your life to Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time, for Your love, Lord, thank you for your grace that you've opened up our eyes, you opened up our ears to hear the gospel message that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. He died upon the cross, took upon every sin we've ever committed, was buried in the tomb, and yet three days later he rose from the grave. And by us putting our faith and trust in him and the, and, and the, the, the penalty he paid for us, we can be born again, our sin forgiven and eternity promise. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is not born again, Lord, that you would touch their heart, that they would not leave this place without making that commitment to you today. While their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? If that's your desire, I'm just asking you to raise your hand so I can pray with you. Anybody at all? 
you want to be born again today, just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning. Father, we thank you for the promises that we have of your word and the love and the grace that you poured out upon us. Lord, help us to be ambassadors of that same love and grace to the world around us. Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit to be that witness. We thank you, Lord, for the time that we have to glorify and honor you with our lives. Help us to use it wisely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So stand and we'll do one last song together.